From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza, downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, finance tech meets solar energy, Aaron Kramer on the climate at Davos, and a conversation with the CEO of Current, GE's new energy spinoff. We're always current here on 350. It's January 29th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here as always with Green Biz Senior Editor, Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hello, bonjour. Bonjour? What's that was a French? flashback. It's like uh, yeah. a month since COP. I'm in withdrawals. Well, funny you're still talking about COP because this week we had our one of our meetings of the Green Biz Executive Network. That's where we bring about 20 to 25 companies together for 24 hours, as you know. Um, and this was here in San Francisco, hosted at PG&E. And the conversation was a lot about COP and not so much what happened in the room, but the forcing function it had in their companies to get them to to make commitments and, and up the game. And then afterwards, after COP and, and the reaction of their customers and RFPs and just how the game seems to have increased since uh, since Paris. And so it's not you know, flashback from the past, it's actually still having it uh, ripple effects. It's interesting. We kept hearing about the road through Paris and people are actually on that path. They're on the road. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, So uh, yeah, a lot of things went happen this week. We'll talk a little bit about uh, clean tech forum and uh, a couple interviews that, that I did and uh, let's just get on with the week in review. So this week, we had two members of the Green Biz editorial team, my esteemed colleague Joel, as well as our senior writer Barbara Grady, hit the road across the bay to San Francisco. They were at Clean Tech Forum. Where were you guys there? Well, Clean Tech Forum is one of those uh, events that we try to get to. It's It's been going on for about 15 years, um, and it's... Um, uh, it's sort of shifted as the clean, whole clean tech world has shifted over the, over that time, where it once was sort of the cutting edge, which is what's going on, and now it's 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 more about the investment possibilities and sort of the new tech, the new startups. Um, you know, I like that a lot of people came up to me and said, "This is interesting," but you know, the real action is over at Verge, where that you know, in terms of where things are going. And I know that's self serving, but it, you know, there is this mood that this is. You know the the investment part, the VC uh, part of venture capital part of clean tech is is a little bit old news, but there's still a lot going on there. And Barbara, you were there, and you you spent more time than I did actually going to sessions. I was doing a lot of meetings. And um, what did you hear? Well, Joel, it seemed to me that there were like three technologies, three themes that kept coming up as the enablers of all sorts of stuff. Those are Internet of Things technology, battery storage and electric vehicles, EVs. And so this clean tech group had assembled or actually asked investors and corporate strategists to name companies that they saw likely to commercialize their products in the next five, 10 years. And they came up with a list of 100, and those three themes kept coming through them. This is the clean tech 100 that they issue every year at this. But those aren't new technologies, storage, IoT, Internet of Things, and um, electric vehicles. 
Um, so what was new that they had to offer? Well, that they can combine these things to make some really interesting plays, like combining IoT stuff and battery storage. And like the age-old business of energy efficiency is now kind of hot stuff because you add IoT and you can make really compelling cases for energy efficiency, which Enlighted is doing. And that company won the Clean Tech 100 kind of company from North America that they chose. Yeah, Enlighted has an interesting product um, sort of involved in that whole smart lighting, smart energy world. Did you talk to any of the other entrepreneurs? Yeah, I talked to um, someone from Farmer's Edge using IoT to and kind of precision ag to make farmers more productive. And it's all about the data and happens to have a bit of a farming background, but it almost doesn't matter so much. You just apply the data. I spoke to uh, Proterra's CEO. The, the electric Hubble. bus yeah, company? Yeah, electric transit. They make city transit buses that run on lithium-ion batteries and um, all electric zero emissions. And uh, he had some interesting things to say because he, he says this is like almost a no-brainer, especially as the cost of these buses goes down because the cost of lithium-ion batteries keeps falling. And they're just about to be competitive with any other kind of bus out there cost-wise. And it makes sense because electric vehicles are now, as everybody's coming out with them, their their range is getting uh, longer. The uh, our, our, our president, my co-founder, Pete May, just bought a Chevy Volt the other day and uh, very proud of it that he's, he's riding most of his time on batteries because it used to get... 35 miles on a charge now it gets about 60 or 70 and it yeah. serves his wow. needs yeah. so yeah it's like going down the technology cost curve as they call it yeah so ryan popple had some interesting things to say about that that i happened to get on record i think the most important driver as to why ev is starting to rapidly penetrate transit is is just the simple cost argument five years ago evs were experimental stage and our market at Proterra was really defined by very low-volume, grant-funded research opportunities. So you'd see one or two electric vehicles and one or two fuel cell vehicles. What has happened is um, the cost of lithium-ion batteries, which we use to power these vehicles, has plummeted. You know, in in some cases, it's probably 70, 80 percent from just five years ago. So rolling right along with the transportation theme, I covered a story this week that had to do with this bustling world of urban mobility that we like to talk about so much on this podcast. This time, though, there was a pretty surprising company involved. It was Xerox. Xerox? Yes. Wait, there's still a Xerox? (laughs) There's still a Xerox, and they do things beyond office supply distribution. (laughs) Copy that. Yeah. So actually what they did, it's it's an interesting model. They're working, it's a public-private pilot, which Xerox is paying for, with the city of LA, obviously notorious for all kinds of gridlock and transportation inefficiencies. And what they're doing is allowing people to download this free app. It's called Go LA. And they can select all the ways they'd like to get around a city. That can be a motorcycle, a zip car, a ride share, like a Lyft or Uber. And then they get all of these options and it can be ranked by either the cheapest, the fastest, or the greenest. Isn't this kind of what 
Google Maps or Siri or others do? Yeah, well, Ride Scout was actually the one that was most popular in this space. They focused mostly on the Lyfts and Ubers of the world, and they were acquired by the Daimler offshoot Movil. Uh, but Google Maps does something similar. It's it's more limited. They only do public transit, walk, bike. And Uber, no Lyft, no Zipcar, um, but similar sort of space. I did reach out to Google and ask them how they pick who gets into their system, but I didn't get an answer. So. Yeah, well, they're still searching for that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, perpetual search. Uh, but it, I mean, I'm sure we're going to see more of these offerings too. Like I said, this is a pilot. They are planning to launch next month in Denver as well. So they're looking to scale it, but I'm sure they will not be the only one playing in the space. Do you have any idea what Xerox's interest is? How does this fit into who Xerox is? Well, funny you should mention that because I just read on Twitter that they are actually going to be splitting into two companies following this model of making the hardware business one entity and the service business another side. And we hit that theme pretty hard in this story. They were pretty adamant that they see urban mobility as a really good way to grow the service side of their business uh, because obviously an app is pretty far removed from some of their more traditional revenue streams. Right, and this is the theme we've been talking about at Verge and the City Summit in particular, bringing the technology companies together with cities to uh, solve some of the problems and figure out what, what's the business model for solving gridlock and parking and traffic and, and, and then a whole bunch of other social and environmental issues. So I think this is, this is a great uh, example of, of the kinds of public-private partnerships that are starting to, to form and, and the business opportunities that result. Right. And the last thing I'd say about that, it does run smack into this whole smart city space. And the thing that the Xerox exec I talked to, Dave Cummins, was saying about this is that the the revenue model, sort of how the, the business model for this works out, isn't totally clear. Um, Xerox is footing the bill for the pilot. Um, but if the city were to invest taxpayer money in the app or in any sort of like sensors on their infrastructure, it's unclear how they would really get a payback, except maybe for advertising. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things that I did this week is Shauna Rappaport and I went down to Google's uh, spinoff um, uh, Sidewalk Labs. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they're, they're still early stage uh, and uh, c- couldn't really talk a lot about a lot about what they're doing. But one example of the first thing they're doing is in New York City now where they've converted the phone booths into uh, Wi-Fi stations. Mm-hmm. There's a great piece in the Wall Street Journal this week where where the reporter said, I think I'm thinking of moving my office to the bus stop at 3rd and 17th Street, apparently because the <laughs> Wi-Fi was so better, so much better there than in her office or, or, <laughs> or wherever she was working. Um, but again, this is an opportunity for city services. And, and I see I think uh, Google's uh, Sidewalk Labs uh, sees this as a platform to sell into a whole, a whole bunch of other goods and services. And again, another example of of providing, improving city life, solving problems, and making a profit doing it. Mm-hmm. And another interesting example of these sort of business macro trends that we took a closer look at this week was the rise of the purpose-driven business. Our senior writer, Mike Hauer, took on that topic, which will also be a major theme at our Green Biz 16 event coming up next month in Phoenix. Yeah, purpose. I mean, it's one of those things I know that you know, a lot of people look look at purpose in business and they think, well, that's kind of California woo-woo. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this is something that uh, is being talked about a lot. And again, uh, this week at the uh, the Green Biz Executive Network meeting, uh, a number of companies, big global companies, 
or we're talking about how that is rising up in their jobs and within their companies, this sense of what is the purpose of what we're doing, not just what's the company mission, not just what's the uh, the job description or the, or the output of products and services, but what's our purpose in the world? Why do we exist? And And it's not always obvious, even though it may seem that way to some people. And answering that is proving to be one of the things that that companies feel they need to do to attract you, Lauren, the millennials. Uh, yeah, well, I was going to say, and, yeah, keep and keep them around. Well, from yeah, from from the millennial perspective, for a second, it does remind me a little bit. Like, okay, could it be a little hollow? Like you're just saying, if you're if you don't feel like you're in a soulless, purposeless job, you're going to work harder, put more time in. Um, it's just interesting to see how they actually integrate the idea of purpose into their mission statements, and then more importantly, sort of in the actual actions of the company. Yeah, a lot of it is simply, you know, playing it back internally, communications. What difference does, do we make in the world? Mm-hmm. And, you know, besides, you know, providing financial returns for our, our shareholders or our owners or whatever. But And, and I think we're going to be hearing more about that. And as you said, that uh, purpose and leadership is one of the tracks at GreenBiz uh, 16. And, and just so you can get the sense of the weight on this, it's being sponsored by PwC. Mm-hmm. PwC, which hires, I think, I want to say 30,000 people a year and is and attracting and retaining talent is a huge, huge financial issue for them because the cost of doing that, of, of re- recruiting and, and keeping people around it, you know, and and they compete with you know lots and lots of other consultancies and, and accounting firms. Um, they the purpose is everything to them. It's a huge part of what they have to offer and a differentiator. So we'll be seeing more about this. And I think Mike's piece is is a good start of that conversation. Yeah, he has the example. There's not only Patagonia, sort of the quintessential example. Yeah, you expect in this space. them to have a purpose, right? Exactly. But then Johnson and Johnson and Starbucks. So some of these big consumer-facing companies where it's maybe much less intuitive. Um, but I agree that this is something we're going to continue to have to watch on purpose. <laughs> So the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, was uh, last week, um, but we're still our, our coverage of it continues. Uh, you wrote a piece, Lauren, about the global uh, global opportunity report that was um, came out uh, in, I guess, the run up or during uh, the World Economic Forum. Uh, talk a little bit about what that what's the opportunity they're talking about. Yeah, this was part of sort of this onslaught of reports we saw around Davos. Most of them focused very heavily on this idea of risk, specifically climate risk and related risks such as food scarcity, um, rising ocean levels and pollution in the oceans. But this report uh, from a group that calls themselves the Global Opportunity Network, it's comprised of the UN Global Compact, the think tank Monday Morning Global Institute, and the consultancy DNVGL, they really sort of flip the concept of risk on its head and list concrete opportunities that are associated with each of these areas. Um, So like in the area of food, they say, um, what if we invest more in ag tech and some things that are like fairly intuitive in that way, but they also take it a step further and say like, well, 
issues in our food supply chain have led to resistance in life-saving medicine. So what happens when we start taking the antibiotics out of food like we've seen big corporations like McDonald's doing? Right. And one of the interesting things that when you put it all together, one of the main messages of the report, and they say this, is, is that... Uh, they call the Sustainable Development Goals, the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals, uh, as the job description for business going forward. And so these are the 17 big honking goals that uh, were passed by the UN back in September uh, around uh, quality education for everyone and ending hunger and ending poverty and, of course, climate change and, and oceans and things like that. And they focused on uh, two of the goals, goal number eight, which has to do with uh, decent work and economic growth. And goal number three on good health and well-being is as part of these opportunities, the business opportunities in solving these problems. So uh, we're going to be, you know, this is something we're going to continue to cover the uh, sustainable development goals. And again, just to bring it back uh, one more time to the Green Biz Executive Network meeting, we asked the companies uh, at, this, at this current series of meetings we've been holding, how much are the sustainable development goals going to be affecting uh, sustainability in their companies in terms of their job descriptions or their missions. And and uh, they said it's it's it hasn't yet, but they can see it coming. And that by the in six months from now, ask that question again, because they're, this is going to become, as the Global Opportunity Report says, the job description for business. Mm-hmm. So speaking of Davos, um, I talked to uh, my good friend Aaron Kramer, the uh, CEO of BSR, who's a Davos regular, who's been to uh, more than a dozen Davos uh, conferences. Uh, I called him when he got back and I wanted to see what was the climate there. <laughs> you know, it was snowing and all, but what was going on? What was the talk about specific to sustainability? And uh, here's what he had to say. So Aaron, uh, first of all, how many years have you been going to Davos? Uh, this was the 12th year. I first went in 2005, so this was number 12. Wow. Um, how's it changed? Well, um, interestingly, the first year I went, um, Davos coincided with a cover story in The Economist that took aim at corporate responsibility, saying, sort of trotting out the old argument, saying that it was a waste of shareholders' money. And um, that was uh, an idea that I think probably was pretty well received uh, by a lot of people at Davos back in 2005. Today, it's changed fundamentally. Um, one of the core themes that uh, the World Economic Forum is advancing is the circular economy. There were a number of events uh, there this year. Climate change was incredibly high on the agenda. Uh, the architects of COP21, Christiana Figueres, Laurent Fabius, Laurence Tubiana, uh, were received like uh, royalty. Um, uh, and the Sustainable Development Goals is in many ways a template for um, a lot of the discussions that were taking place. Now, there's a lot that hasn't changed as well, and you know, it's still a place where a lot of bankers go to do deals that uh, are all about um, extracting value on a short-term basis uh, without regard for sustainability. But I would say overall, uh, there's been a pretty fundamental change, and for the positive. So just before Davos, or as Davos was starting, there were at least a couple surveys out around uh, of CEOs uh, around uh, their views of climate change uh, as a risk factor in, in, in the short to medium term. And and some of them, I think it was one of those polls, it was number one, and another it was is, it was up there. But I've also read uh, some some of the recounts uh, of uh, recountings of Davos that it really wasn't as much of a conversation. Or talk about where climate fit in. 
Well, first of all, the thing to know about Davos is, um, and this was based on a blog that I wrote that was, in fact, in GreenBiz um, as well, there's, there is no single Davos. It, it's sort of a network of networks, and there are uh, a lot of uh, different circles. So in, in many circles, climate change is very much at the top of the agenda. You, you see lots of uh, business leaders, a lot of the familiar names like Paul Pullman of Unilever, Feike Siebsma of DSM, uh, Mark Boland, who's going to be stepping down from Marks and Spencer, um, and and many others who for whom this is really very important. Uh, they're uh, they're thinking about their company's futures with with this in mind. Um, but there are also others who uh, don't pay close attention to it. So I think you know if 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 you look at polls, some of which say climate change is at the top of the agenda, some of which say it's not. I think even though they're contrary results, they're they're both groups are reflective of of reality. I think uh, the topic is one that has certainly penetrated, but it, it would be an overstatement to say that it's you know in, in top issue or in the top three for everybody. What difference do you think Davos makes? In other words, is there a is this a bubble of people talking to themselves, or do you get a sense that what happens in Davos uh, doesn't stay in Davos? In other words, that this actually has uh, ripples or ramifications outside of of the let's call it the Davos bubble. Well, I, no, I think I think it, it absolutely has impacts. I mean, I can tell you from personal experience. So, um, five or six years ago, I worked with the forum to try to get sustainable consumption on the agenda, and I can tell you that in the first meeting uh, that we held with a lot of CEOs, they were all really quiet. I think probably they were quiet because, well, I know for a fact many of them were quiet because they thought the topic was sort of a waste of time and maybe counter to their interests. Today. Frankly, some of those very same companies and some of those very same people are at the center of the discussion around circular economy, which grew naturally out of that, and it's a topic that now has a lot more resonance. Similarly, um, I've, I've been able to participate in dialogues between uh, mining company CEOs, um, I, I, and I facilitated one this year and one last year between mining company CEOs and the leaders of some of the biggest international NGOs, and I would say that the quality of those discussions, the honesty of those discussions, um, has absolutely improved, and uh, you, you build understanding, but more importantly, you build new projects, new partnerships. So, you know, it would be an overstatement to say Davos fundamentally changes the world, Davos sets the world's agenda, but, but I, I think it would be equally wrong to say that it's just a talk shop that doesn't have any impact. So let's talk about the circular economy, which is of close interest to both uh, BSR and, and, and the GreenBiz audiences. Uh, I know there's been a, a working group or a meta-council on that. Uh, how do you see what happens there actually translate into corporate practices? Well, um, first of all, there is an awareness-raising function, and, and I would say that may be one of the most important things, one of the most important roles that, that Davos plays, because um, you can you can raise awareness and put issues that were not on the business agenda or on the global agenda on the agenda, and I think that's undeniably been true um, uh, about the circular economy. Um, number two, um, the the Davos has been a platform for a group uh, out of one of the, one of the subgroups uh, in the World Economic Forum, the Young Global Leaders, which have made uh, the circular economy a real uh, priority, and there's been research. 
uh, that's been developed. There have been uh, partnerships between business and civil society. Uh, there have been industry collaborations that have come out of it. And also Davos is very useful because it's, one, it's a unique forum where you really have strong participation from business, civil society, but also government. So you have governmental lead leaders from the European Commission, from the Danish government, from others who are there to think about how uh, they can create policy platforms that uh, enable uh, circular models to advance. And indeed, I think uh, without the dialogues with the World Economic Forum, I think the European Commission's actions on climate change probably wouldn't have, or, or on circular economy, uh, probably wouldn't have happened or wouldn't have happened so uh, quickly. So um, that's, from agenda setting to public policy to new partnerships, you can see these things get sparked in Davos. You mentioned the uh, Sustainable Development Goals, um, and uh, it's another hot topic, uh, I think, in, in our, both of our worlds. What's the sense of how uh, companies, how those affect company strategy or practices? Because uh, it seems uh, sort of, uh, people, companies I've talked to seem sort of both overwhelming, uh, unwieldy of the 17 goals, but also they're not sure, at least at the corporate, uh, the, the chief sustainability officer level, of what to do with those. Sure, and, and let me say also that one of the big undercurrents uh, in Davos this year was the disconnect between, uh, you know, let's say the elites who, who go to Davos and uh, populations, particularly in the United States and Europe, who are being uh, wooed successfully by populist politicians who have a strong anti-elitist uh, bent. Um, I won't name names, but I think you know who I'm talking about, um, uh, true both in the U.S. And, and Europe. Why Why does that relate to the Sustainable Development Goals? Well, the notion that the economy is producing a lot of wealth and a lot of value, uh, but not for everyone, um, is very much on the agenda. The issue of in income inequality underlies a lot of what's being discussed in Davos, and the Sustainable Development Goals provide an important template for companies uh, to look at making sure that they that that they advance inclusive economic models, something BSR is very interested in, something I'll be talking about with you at the Green Biz Forum uh, next month, very important. Now, as you say, companies can't just adopt all 17 goals equally, let alone all 169 sub goals. That would um, that just doesn't work. And so, um, what uh, the best companies are doing, this is something that we at BSR have worked with some of our members on, is looking at the goals, identifying the ones that are most relevant to their business, the ones where they're able to make the biggest impact, and it may be you choose one or you choose two or three uh, to focus on um, and, uh, and look at the intersection of, uh, of, of social investments, but more importantly, products and services at the core. Now, it's obvious how a healthcare company might, might do that, but equally so, um, an IT company can uh, create new models that will enable uh, people to uh, to improve their uh, their livelihoods, and so really for any company in any sector, there's an opportunity to have a positive impact. But it's got to be mapped carefully. Choices have to be made. Priorities have to be set. So I uh, know when you came back from Paris COP21, uh, we compared notes, and we we both felt uh, pretty energized and and appreciative and excited about all that went happened all that happened there. Do you come away from Davos with the same enthusiasm? What's your reaction being there? Well, first, it was a little bit like a victory lap for some of the people I mentioned earlier. You know, we we um, co-sponsored a dinner with our partners in We Mean Business uh, on uh, on on climate. Tom Friedman moderated, and uh, Christiana Figueres, Rachel Kite, 
Laurence Tubiana were there, and, and there were numerous standing ovations. So it was a little bit like the victory party uh, for <laughs> COP21. Now, um, throughout the week, Christiana was saying routinely that Paris was the easy part, and I think um, that's probably true. And as hard as it was, um, setting a target is always easier than achieving it. And so we have our work cut out for us, and the, the, the objectives uh, were set in Paris, but now we've got to make them real, and, and, and so priorities and activities uh, are shifting uh, as we've entered 2016 and looking ahead. Great. Well, uh, we'll look ahead uh, to seeing, seeing you next month at GreenBiz Forum. Thanks uh, so much, Aaron Kramer, for taking the time to talk about Davos. Thanks, Joel. Shifting gears, another great story that we had this week was from our reporter Keith Larson. Keith is focused heavily on finance, and this week he took on the rise of peer-to-peer lending and this whole area of finance tech and how that relates to solar energy. Yeah, peer-to-peer lending, that's something you usually think about for uh, individuals or startup businesses, uh, lending tree, Kickstarter, and, and all that. What's going on here? The industry is really growing at a rapid clip. Uh, there are some analysts now projecting the space to hit up to $1 trillion in value by the end of 2025. And a lot of that is driven by the fact that you can get around some high transaction costs that typically come with traditional bank arrangements. Um, as Keith reported, people are now starting to look at this space since there's more money floating around as a potential area of interest for capital-intensive fields like energy infrastructure. So I talked to Keith to see what he made of all of this. So Keith, you have obviously covered a lot of finance stories for us. You deal with things like big ideas, the carbon bubble, stranded assets, this whole idea that maybe some fossil fuel assets are ultimately going to have to go unburned. Um, But this is sort of a different type of story. It takes on sort of a tech trend, finance tech, and then marries that with solar energy and solar finance. How did you even hear about this whole convergence? Well, it was kind of interesting. I got it from a pitch from this group called Open Energy Group, and they do commercial, they specialize in commercial peer-to-peer lending or marketplace lending with projects that are between 500 million and 10 million dollar projects. That's some money. That's a good amount of money. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because uh, this financial technology um, story has really been a a real interesting story. What it's doing is uh, technology is replacing traditional roles that banks have played, and they're bypassing some of these transaction fees that that banks are doing. So like with Venmo, you know, it's taking away um, the the role that credit cards have played and, and the transaction fees you have to used to get rid of um, from debit card purchases. Yeah, so it's I've definitely of, used that to pay back friends for Chinese food more than once. Yeah, so it, it's really interesting. And then more broadly, um, I mean, there's a couple of really interesting fine tech companies. Uh, one is this company Money.net, which is um, trying to replace the Bloomberg terminal. And then there's another, and then also peer-to-peer lending, which bypasses the need for banks to 
be used as loan. You don't have to go to the bank anymore to get a loan. You can go to online platforms to get a loan from many more people willing to loan money. Mm-hmm. And what does all of this have to do with solar? I know we hear over and over again that there are really high capital costs involved in renewable energy infrastructure. How does me being able to pay $20 back to a friend, what could that possibly have to do with large-scale clean energy investments? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. So Solar City and this company based in Oakland, actually called Mosaic, have been working on kind of this idea of uh, peer-to-peer lending for residential homes where you're kind of, you can contribute to putting a solar panel on, on your neighbor's roof, which is kind of an interesting concept. But then uh, I think what this company, Open Energy Group, is doing is also filling this void where they're specializing in commercial projects instead of instead of just uh, residential projects. Would that be like a large corporation that's trying to buy clean energy? Like I, I assume IKEA has enough money, but let's use them for the sake of an example. Like if IKEA was looking for a new solar installation, they could go through one of these alternative lenders and maybe lower the transaction costs? Is that sort of the idea or is there something else at work? Yeah, well, actually the example that um, that Graham Smith from Open Energy, the CEO of Open Energy gave me is that many of their, some of their clients are like big schools. Schools or, you know, some government building or something that might want to put solar there. And what it does is it, they kind of play the role that banks have traditionally played where you no longer have to go through a bank anymore to get that loan. You can just go online and do it. And it's cheaper for, well, they claim that it's cheaper because you, it removes the transaction cost and just kind of the inconvenience um, is another thing. It's, I think that's pretty cool. I mean, it's pretty, it's really simple. Like it's, you know, it's, it's not this long arduous process anymore of going to a bank and waiting and, and talking to all these people. It, it, it really simplifies anything. So it's, it's kind of a really interesting concept, too, because it's like these two d- disruptive forces are meeting together, you know, fine tech, which is disrupting the whole banking industry, and then solar energy, which is disrupting the, the whole energy uh, field. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up sort of the combination of two different areas of disruption, because we are hearing, and it's a kind of an overblown buzzword now, but we are hearing about disruption in transportation, food, all kinds of sectors right now. Yeah, I think what's really kind of interesting is this This kind of reminds me of, of Uber and the disruption that Uber made to the, the cab business and the taxi business because, you know, you have one disruptive force that's re- disrupting this traditional industry, but it has its own problems. And I think one quote that I found kind of interesting about peer-to-peer lending is that it's operating in a regulatory purgatory. Like Uber, there may be more regulations imposed upon it. You know, you kind of don't know. You're, you don't really know. There's just so much uncertainty um, with both of these both of these industries, and you're kind of bypassing one you know industry to to get to another that that has its own problems. So I, I think that's going to be an interesting development. Just just this uncertainty of if, if there's more regulations imposed on peer peer lending. Yeah, especially if you're talking about a, a long term investment. How many times could the rules change over the life of that investment? That would certainly be interesting to watch. Right. And then we also don't know what's going to happen, you know, in 20 years. I mean, that's there's so much capability of something happening in to disrupt solar. You know what? 
what if there's another energy source that that really disrupts everything and and that that's kind of what interests me is just these you know this this uncertainty when you're financing the, these uh, solar projects. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and I also wanted to ask you. I know a theme that comes up in a lot of your finance reporting as it relates to sustainability is this tension between long and short term capital commitments. Uh, like with solar, you're talking about a payback sometimes of ten or twenty years, and I know that there can be long lease terms. You actually did have a. This might reveal something about my sense of humor, but I thought the funniest quote in your piece was with a 20 year lease. I mean, some people might not even be alive in 20 years, which yeah, yeah, is a I fair thought, point, but how do you think about all those issues? Yeah, I thought it was, um, it, it was pretty interesting and uh, pretty interesting point actually, because that's kind of the, the challenge of some of these projects is that there, there is this long contract. Um, you're looking with that contract with a longer term contract, you're not really looking for, you know, the individual investor. It's not, I don't know, just some even some rich guy it's it's big pension funds you know you're looking at you know really big mutual fund and institutional investors that are, that are looking for a steady return um, over time it reminds me a little bit in some ways about the whole microfinance micro insurance boom we've read about where these sort of disruptive models in finance are being applied to renewable energy um, but how do peer-to-peer lending in these sorts of finance tech tools potentially get at those issues of um, sort of long-term versus short-term returns? It is kind of a long-term game right now with peer-to-peer lending just because of the nature, I guess, of solar projects. But I think that it's it's also, you also have to look at the return is, is from what they're claiming is, is pretty good. And it's a lot better. Um, like I think for, for investors, it's, it's pretty good. I think with open energy, they said they're looking at um, between a five and six percent return, which is pretty good. You know, it's better than putting it in a CD or a, or you know more safer investments. And it's it's really the the kind of emergence of peer peer lending is is just a way for investors to try to get a higher yield, um, in part due to low interest rates. So it's kind of their way of, of bypassing, I don't know, kind of bypassing the traditional system. Right, right. So you still have to have patient capital, probably, but you're looking at changes in in those returns potentially, or, or definitely in the transaction fees. Okay. I mentioned that you have written about other finance stories for us, and there's been a lot of uh, attention of late. I wrote a story this week about carbon pricing, sort of after the Paris climate talks, a lot more focus on how the hell do you finance all of this clean energy infrastructure? Um, and an area you've covered a lot is sort of the financial disclosure piece, like maybe driving more finance to clean energy if companies are forced to report more thoroughly on their carbon emissions, look, give a harder look at stranded assets, those type of things. So I'm just curious um, your thoughts on sort of how that conversation has evolved. Um, obviously, peer-to-peer lending is one part of all of this, but you've also got a, a lot of high-level talk going on about sending capital away from stranded assets and towards clean energy. Yeah, I think um, there's been some really interesting developments in terms of disclosure. The Financial Standards Board is just just issued a task force of for climate-related disclosures, and there, and it which is led by uh, Michael Bloomberg, who, who is um, been in the news 
uh, quite a bit recently. <laughs> but I think another really uh, interesting development is what what happened with uh, Peabody Coal, where they had to agree to disclose some of their climate-related risks. I don't know whether that will change, whether other companies will disclose more risks or not. But I, I think it's kind of it's kind of interesting saying that something is something is finally being enforced um, with that regard. One of the things that's interesting to me about all this, Lauren, is that this really opens up who gets to be a renewable energy developer. Uh, it's not just you know necessarily big you know, the big players and the utilities and entrepreneurs, but it could be a church group, could be a nonprofit, it could be a university, it could be us. You know, any any number of. Providers and of course, there's a downside to that too. When everybody's developing that stuff, first of all, some will do it better than others. There'll be quality control issues. Some just, uh, you know, and then of course they, they could be flooding the market. But that's a nice problem to have. So this is definitely a story we're going to continue to watch. So turning back to the Clean Tech Forum that was here this week in San Francisco, um, I had a chance to sit down with Mary Rose Sylvester, the uh, president and CEO of a new company called Current. What exactly is Current? I do the people column here, and I've seen that GE has been doing a bunch of executive shakeups, all kinds of movement. Well, this is a new spinoff out of GE. In fact, it's called Current powered by GE. Their URL is currentbyge.com. Yeah, well, they're really they're branding both of those, and and it's a uh, they call it a um, digital power service uh, th that's really going to be able to knit together uh, two parts of GE. One is the energy part, the GE Energy and the lighting and all the different systems that they have, and and then the sensors and analytics and software. And to try and turn those into some turnkey services for commercial and industrial and municipal customers. So it's a new offering that really, I think, goes to as, you know, sort of this whole way of companies sort of focusing on the service side or on the hardware side. And actually, in this case, they're integrating the two. Uh, Mary Rose uh, Sylvester the, was the president and CEO of uh, GE Lighting. She's been with GE for, for a fairly long time, 27 years or so. And uh, she was in San Francisco, and I wanted to learn about this company, which is only uh, less than two months old, and to hear what she's planning and what they're up to. So let's listen in. Let's start with the elevator pitch for Current. How do you talk about it? You know, we are 13 weeks old with Current, and we really think of ourselves as a new kind of energy infrastructure com company where we're bringing together parts of the distributed infrastructure, solar, LED, um, storage, but really enabling it with software and IT solutions to really create this connected grid. And are these all parts of GE that you're bringing together in a new form, or are there new things that uh, hadn't been done before? Yeah, it's, it's both of those. You know, we're getting started with pieces of GE, uh, the kind of the GE technology platforms that we think are really relevant today to what's going on uh, behind the meter, really, and in front of the meter around energy cost reduction, energy optimization. So 
solar, storage, LED, EV, which are all technologies that are fairly new in the GE portfolio and all have been transformative already in some way. So we're bringing those together, but coupling those with the uh, capability around the GE digital industrial platform of Predix, our cloud computing platform that allows us to connect all of those assets and turn data into information for customers. But then really think about technologies and software and how to deploy new solutions for customers that provide outcomes, and a lot of times that will be deployed through a service agreement, so power as a service, data as a service, lighting as a service. And then the way we get it into the customer's hands, though, is with kind of a different way to sell. With We're calling these people outcome sellers, people we've hired not from our industries, but really from consulting and from software industries that can really help really speak the language of our customers, understand what their biggest problems are, really around energy costs, energy resiliency, and really trying to help understand how we can help them solve those problems and really bring all of that capability to them and deliver it to them in a, in a way that they want to digest the solution. So some of this sounds to me like the whole industrial internet program, which we've written and talked about a lot on GreenBiz, in the sense that you're bringing intelligence and analytics and software and delivering services. In, in, in those cases, I think they're more to, to bigger aircraft manufacturers and turbine uh, owners and, and, and MRI uh, owners and the like, but is that similar? How do those, how does, how do current and industrial internet connect or relate? Yeah, I think they, they're very, current is a digital industrial business all focused around energy infrastructure. So that is, it's kind of a microcosm of what we're doing across GE. Now, some of the assets that we're optimizing RGE assets, and some are not. What we're more focused on is what's going on in the environment of our customer. A lot of times it's GE assets around solar or LED or storage, and sometimes it's looking at some of the other consumers of energy, whether it's HVAC or other platforms, but how you help a customer look at how that energy is being consumed and how to make it more efficient to allow their business to run more efficiently and understand how choices they can make inside their building envelope can be uh, made better and help them reduce their overall energy consumption and energy costs. Also allowing them the choice of producing power on site through our solar uh, portfolio to help them just become more resilient and much more cost effective. So you'd be going to a commercial building owner, for example, or a corporate building owner and, and saying, what? And what, what is the offering? Give us an example of, of what the pitch might be to a customer. So it'll be, it'll be first of all, how can we uh, have this opportunity to help you become more cost efficient around your energy costs and your overall operating costs by helping you think about energy in a new way? And then we have a discussion with them about, does that pique your interest? And what are the problems you're trying to solve? And everyone's coming at it from a little bit different way. But all of them, at the end of the day, want to reduce their costs. And energy, electricity is a big cost item to any building operator. So we'll get into a discussion of how can we help you. And oftentimes, we'll start with, you know, if we could just reduce our cost per kilowatt hour, that would be a big help. And solar is often the way we get into the building and help them generate that power on site. We then have a discussion, how do we help them do that as a purchase power agreement so they can pay for it as they go and start thinking about more of an OPEX opportunity than CAPEX. Oftentimes it's coming into the building through LED, right, and helping them think about how can they reduce their uh, electricity costs through their lighting system. In many commercial buildings or retail buildings, it's 30 percent of their energy costs is lighting. With LED, you can reduce that cost 50 percent. So we start there 
But then we talk, talk about, okay, what else can we do while we're in there? We can sensor enable these assets to help you get more value out of that asset. So if it's lighting, we can sensor enable lighting, complement it with the Predix cloud computing platform, and help them to collect that information of what's going on in their environment. To help them if they're a retail store to understand shoppers' behavior, to understand how employees are turning the inventory to understand how their rooms are occupied, how they can react differently to heating levels, lighting levels, to save energy costs and make their building much more cost efficient. They're all just looking for how can I, with, um, with new technology, make myself more efficient, give myself ongoing productivity. And the other thing we're learning is that we have this opportunity to make more of those decisions for them, not use their capital, but allow these decisions to be more OPEX expense for them that lets them more pay as they go and lets them bring value into their bottom line much more quickly. So you came to this from the lighting side of GE, and you, it, it sounds like that lighting is sort of the gateway drug for, for current customers. Um, talk a little bit about that, why that makes sense, why lighting you know, is the way to enter these markets. Mm -hmm. So lighting is just one piece of the current portfolio, but it happens to be that Today, the activation rate of LED, it's almost startling, right? You think about LED has hit that tipping point where the payback is attractive for commercial buildings, for hospitals, for cities, for retailers. These are people, these are industries that consume a lot of electricity, and they're looking for scalable technology that allows them to reduce their operating costs quickly. So LED has become kind of the entry point. But then you think about you can sensor enable that, and you can do so many more things for them. So lighting is a Trojan horse, but it's also can become the neural network uh, for the building. So it allows you to start the conversation, start the savings, bring in solar, bring in storage, bring in EV. But sometimes it starts the other way. We have plenty of customers where it starts with a relationship around solar, and some retailers are looking to go faster on solar and not as fast on LED. Some hospitals, you know, the same way. So it really depends on where the customer is in their, in their technology shift programs. So as this scales, you're going to be disrupting utilities a lot by taking, uh, working with their customers in ways that, frankly, they should be but aren't. Um, what's your relationship with utilities? They're also a very big customer of GE's. That's a great question. Utilities are a tremendous customer to GE, for sure, on the power side of our business. But even the, the lighting side of the business, we sell LED systems to utilities you know, across the country to help make their systems more cost efficient. So big, big customers of ours. But you know, the grid is getting disrupted because customers need to save operating costs. So people are doing it. They want to do it with a partner like GE that can future-proof uh, the technologies for them. So whether you're a Walmart or a Walgreens or a Simon Properties or J.P. Morgan, you're making huge decisions that are going to last for a long time. You want to do that with a partner that's going to be there and take you and lead you through that technology shift. So it's going to happen. It's going to happen uh, at scale. But I think GE is pretty uniquely positioned to have the scale and the competency to also reach out and partner with the utilities and for how do we keep this grid um, sustainable and productive because we all need the grid. We need a safe and reliable grid. It's the backbone of our economy. So finally, you're, as you said, 13 weeks old, mm -hmm. just getting going. When we sit down in a year to talk about current, what's the story you hope to be able to tell? 
That is such a great question. You know, we hope a year from now we're starting to grow up, that we've got a very big installed base around solar and LED, that we've got some of the very first pilots done around energy management and intelligent environments. We have more proof points showing the customers of not just discrete technology um, installations, but more holistic kind of building envelope uh, cost reduction that we've done some pilots in conjunction with uh, utility partners, one or two pilots where we can see the benefit of networking, a more reliable grid, and that we've got um, customers excited about where we're going. We have seven launch customers that we started with, so a year from now we want to be at a point where we know what works for them, what resonates for them, and that we're picking at least several of those to start scaling. Great. It's going to be interesting, and I look forward to that conversation. Mary Rose Sylvester, thank you very much. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here, Joel. Thank you. Well, this week has been great, but what's going to be happening next week? Joining me now is Managing Editor Elsa Wenzel. How's it going? Pretty good. How about you? Good, good. So what is in store? Uh, we have an even bigger week ahead. Drum roll, drum roll, please. Drum roll, yay. So <laughs> thank you. On Tuesday, February 2nd, that's 2-2-2. Tuesday, the second day of the second month, we are lifting the curtain on Green Biz's ninth annual State of Green Business Report. So SOGB is our affectionate acronym for the State of Green Business Report, and we've partnered again with TrueCost to produce more than 80 pages of insights, data, and trends. It's a must-read if you work in or care about sustainability in business. SOGB calls out 10 big trends driving big change in business in the year ahead. I won't give them all away, but here are some punny rhyming hints (laughs) about just three of them. Perks at work, motion in the ocean, caring about sharing okay i'm sorry that's like super corny but anyway you'll be able to read the entire report all at once as a pdf um, followed shortly by an ipad app we'll also run each of the 10 trend pieces as individual articles over the coming few months and that's really the biggest news next week but we have a lot of regular stories as well Um, senior writer heather clancy will look at campbell's soup taking a stand with new gmo labeling and interface is stepping up its carpet recycling um that's not all but check in and find out stay tuned to greenbiz.com lots going on um when it comes to the State of Green Business 2016, we'll also have a free webcast on that day, 2-2, February 2nd. So sign up for that. You can just go to greenbiz.com, click on the events tab at the top of the page. Then on February 9th, we'll have another free webcast. That one's called Getting to Yes on Renewable Energy Deals. So check that one out if you're looking at solar, wind, anything there. Thanks, Elsa and Lauren. That's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find links to the organizations and stories and events that we mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to 350's producer, Sir Ray Melconian. Uh, by the way, you can subscribe to GreenBiz 350 through all the usual kinds of channels like iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or however else you listen to podcasts. And you'll find it every week on Friday morning on greenbiz.com or through our daily email newsletter, Green Buzz. And send us your feedback, your ideas, your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Just mail to 350 at greenbiz.com. 
For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.